Halloween, everyone! Welcome to Historically Haunted. I'm your ghost host, Ariel, and tonight I will be taking a deep dive into the heightened strangeness of the Salem Witch Trials, and then I will be talking about some locations that are still said to be haunted within Salem, Massachusetts today. Before I begin, I wanted to say thank you to all of you for listening to my show. Whatever you're doing for Halloween this year, I hope that you guys stay safe and have fun. I am going to be staying in this year. I'm going to be doing a movie and pizza night with my family. My area doesn't have trick-or-treaters anyways, so I don't have to worry about not giving out candy this year. I would love to see your costumes though, so please tag me when you guys post pictures of your Halloween costumes and or decorations on Instagram at Historically Haunted, or if you are comfortable, you can even post them to the Facebook group page that is named Historically Haunted group page. You can even tag me on Twitter if you want at haunt underscore history. I wanted to give a shout out to all my awesome Patreons. You guys are really helping me keep the show going. I have to pay for monthly fees for my podcast hosts and I have to pay for all the sound effects, music, and marketing tools that I use and so much more. So thank you all so much for helping support the show. I do some fun bonus episodes every month for my Patreons as well as I send my new Patreons a thank you card and some stickers. If you wanted to become a Patreon of Historically Haunted to help support the show, a link to my Patreon page is down below in the show notes. Just a quick update before I begin, I have been trying to find out a way to sell some t-shirts and hoodies with my logo on them. I don't know if anyone would be interested in purchasing any shirts or even a maybe a mug, and I'm thinking about selling some stickers as well, but I'm trying to figure out a way that I can open a shop on my website. I thought I had everything figured out last week, and then after I got everything set up, it was just not going to work the way I thought it would, so I'm kind of stuck trying to find out how I can do this. I am going to ask around on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if anyone would be interested in getting a Historically Haunted merch, so please Please let me know if that would be something that you guys would be interested in and I will try a different company to figure out how I can do this. The other problem I'm running into is right now with COVID and shipping is being so messed up for everyone that many size shirts that I would want and that I think you guys would probably want are out. So they don't have half the sizes that are normally available because of shipping problems. But I just wanted you guys to be aware that I'm trying to find a way to make a shop happen. So like I said, if that's something you're interested in, please let me know. And hopefully if they can get their shipments under control, maybe I could get it out by Thanksgiving. I hope. Fingers crossed. I got some new iTunes reviews and I wanted to read them before I begin. So I got one from username Mac. 1728 and it says I recently found this podcast and I have listened to almost every episode already. The episodes are well researched and blend the history with the spooky happenings in a great way. Lastly I have noticed a trend with large content producers and famous people dominating the podcast charts so I am really happy that I have found a new independent podcast to follow. Thanks Ariel and keep up the great work. Thank you so much for that review, Mac1728. I too have noticed that ever since especially the pandemic hit, so many famous people have started to make their own podcasts as well. It's cool and all, and I do listen to some of them, but it does kind of stink for the smaller, harder working people like us. When you're rich, you already have producers that'll do all the hard stuff for you, and I literally do everything with just me and my laptop. So thank you so much for uh, that great review and giving my show a listen. I got another review from the name Zena Metal, I think is how you say that. Zena Metal, maybe? And this one says, 
I found this pod while looking for content about Sleepy Hollow, and I'm glad I did. Love Ariel's approach to paranormal and historical research, and I hear so much potential for the show. Can't wait to listen to more. So thank you so much for that review, Zena Metal. I'm sorry, reading these uh, usernames always trips me up, but I am so glad that you liked the Sleepy Hollow episode and that you decided to uh, listen to the rest of my content and you're enjoying it. So thank you all so much, and I really do put a lot of historical research research into this and I try so hard to make sure I'm accurate and it's hard doing it all on your computer when you're you know all the way across the country and you've never been to these places so thank you guys so much for acknowledging all the historical research that I put into this show. Reviews on iTunes are really important for podcasts, especially small ones like mine. It'll give other people a chance to find my show easier. So any reviews I receive really do help. And uh, I already now have 22 ratings. So I realize that that really does help me out. So thanks guys so much. Okay, you guys, are you ready for this Halloween episode? I have been so excited to do this one, and I've been waiting all year just so I could do it for Halloween time. I have been fascinated with the Salem Witch Trials ever since I was a young girl when I saw a documentary on the Discovery Kids channel, and it was actually super scary because they did not hold back on showing how the girls acted in the trials and also at home. And yes, I said Discovery Kids. I'm that old. <laughs> okay, guys, this is a good one. So turn down the lights, maybe even safely light a candle or two, have some tea or wine, and sit back and get ready. If you grew up in the United States of America, there is a good chance that you have heard about the Salem Witch Trials. Every public school's history class seemed to love to cover this one during Halloween time because even the most too cool for school type of kids even seemed to listen to this story and wonder what in the world was going on in that sleepy town of Salem, Massachusetts. <laughs> Oh yeah, thank you, Black Shuck. What? No, of course I didn't forget about our monstrous moment. Relax, I was pausing for dramatic effect, I swear. See, watch. But we can't talk about that until we do our monstrous moment. See, I told you. Stories of encounters from strange beasts lurking deep in the forests, on snowy mountaintops, and in dark caves have been told throughout the generations, turning to legend. But what if I told you that many of these creatures are still spotted today? I call these monstrous moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's monstrous encounter. On August 4th, 1577, while a mighty storm rocked the Holy Trinity Church of Blythburg, England, a group of people were inside praying and singing their hymns. Suddenly, with a loud clap of thunder, a hellish beast burst through the doors. A large black dog, standing seven feet tall with matted fur and huge blood-red glowing eyes, ran through the middle of the church with unnatural speed. This dog suddenly killed two, a man and a young boy, who were kneeling in prayer by wringing their necks with his large teeth. After he killed them, he turned around and faced the congregation before running back out the front doors, knocking over the steeple on his way out, and leaving two scorch marks on the north door of the church before vanishing into the storm. 
the scorch marks can still be seen to this day. The legend I just told you is the legend of the Black Shuck. The Black Shuck, also known as Old Shuck, has been in the East Anglian folklore for centuries. According to legend, the Black Shuck is a ghostly, seven-foot-tall black dog that roams the forests and footpaths of East Anglia and the British Isles. He has also been described as a large black dog with glowing red eyes. Sometimes this dog has been said to be as large as a horse, and in some accounts, he only has one large, fiery red eye in the center of his face. It is said that today he is still out there and you can still hear him howling in the darkness looking for his next victims. The name Black Shuck means Black Devil, and it comes from the Old English word sucka, meaning devil or demon. The origin of the Black Shuck stem from the ideas of hellhounds. The first written text about these beasts comes from 1127, when many men from the town of Petersburg claimed to see and hear a party of huntsmen who were described as black, huge, and hideous. They rode on black horses and had large jet black hounds with red glowing eyes like saucers accompanying them. According to legend, the witnesses of this hunt in 1127 claimed that 20 to 30 of these dogs decided to stay in the area until Easter, but some believe that one of them decided to stay for good. This description from 1127 is known as the Wild Hunt. These hunts are not exclusive to this area of England, though, because there have been countless stories of these wild hunts all across Western and Northern Europe. The idea of the wild hunt actually can be traced back to Nordic mythology. The Vikings believed that in the dead of winter, the riders of the wild hunt would come on the winds of a bad storm to capture and take souls with them to the underworld. Some even believed that the leader of these hunts was a woman, believed to be a heathen goddess named either Durkentha or Holda. Either way, these stories terrified the Vikings into staying inside during those long winter nights, while the howling winds outside meant that the wild hunt was going on. The Black Shuck is now more of an urban legend, but that does not explain the eyewitness accounts of when the Black Shuck burst into a church and killed two inside. The story I told you in the beginning of this segment apparently actually happened in 1577. It even made it into the local newspaper, and the villagers thought of it to be fact. Today, the Black Shuck is still believed to be in the area. It is said that he now haunts the highways and lonely roads. While you can hear his howls in the distance, he makes no sound when he steps towards you, so you can never really hear him approaching you until it is too late. He also disappears as quickly as he appears. Many people still believe in this legend, and if you hear the Black Shucks howls, you better run and hide, because many believe that he is an omen of doom, and if you glimpse this beast, it can cause your death. In 2013, a 7-foot tall large dog skeleton was found, but many people think that this dog that was buried is not Black Shuck because the way that he was buried, it was most likely someone's loyal companion, not a hellish beast. Today, the Black Shuck is kind of like Bigfoot in America. People go out looking for him as well as still claim to have run-ins with this massive beast. Black Shuck is a famous story that still scares people in the area. The town also sells lots of Black Shuck merchandise and it is now famous in pop culture. So so if you are ever alone at night near Blytheburg, England, and you start to hear a ghostly howl, you might want to just go inside, just in case it is old Shuck stalking the night.
Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick time out and ask you a question. Did you know that one in 10 people have dyslexia? You might even have it and not know it. Dyslexia is a learning disability that affects reading, spelling, and sometimes math, but it has nothing to do with low intelligence. I know because Einstein himself had it. Oh, and I have it too. Many people go undiagnosed, but it is important that you know the signs so that you can get help right away. The faster you know your child has it, the faster you can start doing things differently so that they can start thriving in school. And if you're an adult who also might have it, remember, you are never too old to ask for help. Please go to dyslexia.org to find out more or my website, historicallyhaunted.net, and click on the Information About Dyslexia tab. Okay, back to the show. Salem is located on the north coast of Massachusetts on Salem Bay at the mouth of the Numcag River. And I probably said that wrong, and if I did, I apologize. This was also the site of an ancient Native American village and trading center. It was one of the most important seaports in colonial history. Salem was settled in 1626 by a company of fishermen led by Roger Contant. The settlement struggled for two years until the Massachusetts Bay Company placed John Endicott in charge of the settlers. The transition of leadership was orderly. The original name was Numkeg, but following the change of leadership, the name was changed to Salem, which comes from Shalom, meaning peace in Hebrew. The town of Salem was given a charter by the King of England, which allowed them to self-rule. The king allowed the governor to be chosen by the men in Massachusetts Bay Company. Puritans bought control of the company and chose John Winthrop, a Puritan living in London, to replace Endicott as governor. The Puritan movement began in England. King Henry VIII established the Church of England, but kept many of the teachings and ceremonies of the Catholic Church. Under the reign of King Edward VI, Protestant reforms began to change the church doctrine. Puritans wanted to follow the teachings of the Bible specifically. They wanted to remove all teachings or rituals that were not found in the Bible but that the Catholic Church practiced. Then when Edward's half-sister Mary had the throne, she persecuted Protestants and went back to the traditions of the Catholic Church. Queen Elizabeth I took to the throne in 1558 and revived the Church of England. The Puritan movement led to the English Civil Wars in the 17th century. I talked about this war a little bit in my Tower of London and Edinburgh Castle episodes. Some groups chose to migrate to the New World in the 1620s and in the 1630s. John Winthrop attended Trinity College, Cambridge for two years and considered becoming a minister. Instead, he became a lawyer and had a successful practice. He was a very religious man and wanted the Church of England to reform to the Puritan beliefs. Winthrop chose to immigrate to the New World when it seemed the reforms were not going to happen in England. There was a fleet of 12 ships with about 1,000 people ready to sail to the New World at the beginning of 1630. After many weather delays, Winthrop's ship, the Artabella, set sail on April 10, 1630. 
The Artabella reached Salem on June 12th and the rest of the fleet arrived a few weeks later. This was the beginning of the Great Migration that occurred between 1630 and 1642 when thousands of English families settled in Massachusetts. The Puritans wanted to have religious freedoms to establish their own church, but they were not interested in any other faiths joining them. Their laws were very strict and punishments included fines, loss of property, banishment, and imprisonment. While the settling of Salem is interesting, it is most famous for the witch trials. The history of witch hunts can be traced back to Europe in the 1300s. The enthusiasm of witch hunts in Europe reached its peak from the 1580s into the 1640s. There was actually two Salems at this time, Salem Town and Salem Village. Salem Town was in the port town on the Massachusetts Bay, and Salem Village was about 10 miles inland and a much smaller, poorer community based on farming. Something happened in this small farming town of Salem that set off a chain of events that has baffled historians and scientists to this day, the Salem Witch Trials. The Salem Witch Trials began in the spring of 1692 and lasted until the winter of 1693. Today, the Salem Witch Trials are still the most famous event in American history. People have tried to explain what the heck was going on in this town for hundreds of years, and the opinions of what caused these events range from the truly skeptical to historical and scientific, and also some still think something paranormal was going on behind the scenes. No matter what camp you were in, I'm going to go into a deep dive of the events of the trials, and then I will let you decide. But at the end of the day, even you won't be able to say that there was nothing strange going on in Salem. Prior to this major event, the area had been through a lot of hardships. There had been a smallpox epidemic, the town of York, not that far away, had been raided by Native Americans, so they were fearful of their town being raided. Also, the Puritan religion held a strong belief in the devil, and there were many arguments among the settlers over land, and Salem's pastor blamed this on the devil. The strange events of the Salem Witch Trials began when the minister's daughter, Betty Paris, age 9, and the minister's niece, Abigail Williams, age 11, began having strange fits. They screamed, threw things across the room, made strange sounds, crawled around on the floor under furniture, and twisted their bodies into strange, horrifying positions. They also complained of feeling like they were getting bitten and pinched. This strange behavior started to appear in other girls and young women in the town, including Anne Putnam Jr., Elizabeth Hubbard, Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, and Mary Warren. There was also a similar case in Boston earlier in the year where children from the same family were believed to have been bewitched. Boston minister Cotton Mather wrote about this in his pamphlet called Memorable Providences Related to Witchcraft and Possession, and that was printed in 1689. Some historians believe that the girls from Salem could have heard about this pamphlet and decided to copy it out of boredom, but this has never been proven. Salem's doctor, Dr. Griggs, was called in, but he was unable to give an 
explanation for the girl's strange behaviors, he decided to blame the supernatural forces. Minister Paris demanded that the girls name who it was that was causing their fits. The first people Betty and Abigail accused were Tichiba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. All three were social outcasts for various reasons. The Paris's servant, Tichiba, was from the West Indies and followed a different culture and religion. Sarah Good was very poor and a bigger woman. Sarah Osborne was elderly and sometimes bedridden and didn't attend church very often. However, Tichiba had lived with the Parises for many years and historians assume that they had a close relationship, especially with Betty, so it is very strange that they accused her of witchcraft. Due to the girl's young age, the girl's testimony could not be used in court, but once women were inflicted, they were able to take their testimony and begin the trials. The accused were interrogated for several days in front of the local court judges beginning on March 1, 1692. Good and Osborne claimed their innocence, but Tichiba finally confessed, probably because it was easier to confess since she was a slave to Minister Paris. Tichiba was born in Arkak Village in South America and was taken as a child to be a slave in Barbados before she was purchased by the Puritan minister Paris, who brought her to Boston and then relocated the whole family to Salem when he took the job as Salem's minister. By the time Tichiba confessed, she had already been suffering in jail for a few days. She was also a very petite woman, so it makes sense that she might have confessed and blamed others who were stronger than her and forcing her to hurt the children. She also could have thought that the justices would have seen her as a victim, and it worked because she was one of the few who confessed and didn't end up getting hanged. Salem's two local magistrates, Jonathan Cornwell and John Hawthorne, presided over the trials. Hawthorne interrogated Tichiba. During her confession, court documents quote her as saying, The devil came to me and bid me serve him. She was asked by Hawthorne, Who have you seen? Tichiba replied, four women sometimes hurt the children. She was asked to name them. She named Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good and two others she did not know. When asked who was torturing the poor girls, she replied, the devil for all I know. She continued to describe him. She said he was tall, had dark hair, and wore dark clothing. He would also sometimes appear as a hog, sometimes as a big black dog. He asked her to serve him, but she refused. The man then said he would kill her if she did not do as he said, and he would hurt the children. She said that she also saw other animals, a red rat, a black rat, cats, and a hairy creature that walked on two legs. They would ask her to serve them. She also said Sarah Good had a yellow bird and it would suck on meat that Sarah gave it. Tichiba also said the women wore hooded cloaks, one white and one red, and they flew through the air on wooden sticks. The women asked her to hurt the children. She said many other things that shocked the people in the crowded courtroom. People had traveled from all over the area to witness these trials, and it became quite a spectacle. The afflicted girls chanted in the courtroom while Tichiba confessed, repeating, Sometimes like a hog, sometimes like a big black dog. They also crawled around on the floor and were having fits right in the courtroom while Tichiba was confessing. It was rare for someone to confess to practicing witchcraft, but her testimony captivated her audience and validated that there were really witches in their town. Tichiba's confession caused mass hysteria to spread throughout the area. Suddenly to the Puritans, anyone could be a witch, the devil was among them, and this amped up the paranoia. One more connection Tichiba has to this story is that she apparently told voodoo stories to Betty, Abigail, and their 12-year-old friend, Ann Putnam Jr. 
Many historians believe that this could have also triggered the girls' strange behaviors. There have been some theories that claim that the girls were interested in her voodoo stories and that they might have tried to do their own kind of divination or rituals. Then, after they did so, they felt so guilty about it that it made them start to act out. Maybe they were scared that they would be found out and it caused them to have extreme anxiety for fear of harsh punishment. I also found mention in my research of the possibility that Tichaba may have encouraged the girls to find out the identity of their future husbands through a ritual type game and that was considered taboo. There are also stories that they got involved in fortune telling. Or another theory is that the girls were so bored and wanted to get attention so badly that Tichaba's stories, along with the possible knowledge of the Boston pamphlet, inspired them to act out. But if the girls did start this as one big joke or a way to get attention, they were playing a dangerous game. Tichaba's confession and the panic it created caused a flurry of accusations. Four more women were accused of being witches, but it began to not just be women who were accused, for some men were accused as well. Not everyone living in the area believed in witchcraft or the accusations from the girls, but voicing doubt soon became dangerous when many critics started to be accused of witchcraft themselves. John Proctor was a farmer who thought the girls were lying. John, his pregnant wife Elizabeth, all of his children, and even his sister-in-law were accused of witchcraft in April. By May, the trials began to be too much for the local court to handle. So the new governor, William Phillips, ordered a special court to handle the witchcraft cases. It was called Court of Oyer and Terminer, which means to hear and determine. They needed eight judges to preside over the many trials. In order to convict someone of witchcraft, the court accepted three main types of evidence. One, confession. Two, testimony of two eyewitnesses to someone practicing witchcraft. And number three, spectral evidence. Spectral evidence is the afflicted's claim to see the spirit or specter of the witch or her animal companion tormenting them. A witch's animal companion is normally referred to as a familiar. This was the most common evidence used during the trials and, of course, the easiest type to fake. The girls having fits and chanting during Tichaba's confession was considered spectral evidence. Spectral evidence alone was not enough to convict someone, but it was powerful and convincing. Other evidence that could be brought before the court were someone being in possession of materials that could be used in spells, having greater than common strength, and unusual moles or birthmarks on the body that were considered witch marks. Sometimes the touching test was used. While one of the girls was having a fit, the accused would have to touch her. If the girl calmed down, this was considered evidence of witchcraft. If a confession was gained through the use of torture, it was not accepted unless the person says the confession again while not being tortured. If the accused denied the confession, they had to recite the Lord's Prayer. If they couldn't do that, then they were considered a witch. 34 more people were accused in May. The witch hunt started in Salem Village and quickly spread to several neighboring towns. Those accused were brought to the Salem and put before the special court in the Salem courthouse. They were not allowed to have any legal counsel and were forced to plead guilty or innocent on the spot. The court's first conviction was that of Bridget Bishop. Bridget had immigrated from England to Massachusetts Bay Colony shortly after her first marriage to Samuel Walsby in 1660. Walsby died in 1664, and Bridget remarried Thomas Oliver, a widower, in 1666. 
Oliver had two children from a previous marriage, and the couple had had a daughter together. Bridget and Thomas had a troublesome relationship filled with quarreling. They were brought in front of the court in 1670 for their fighting. A neighbor testified that she saw Bridget's face bloodied and bruised on several occasions. They were ordered by the court to pay a fine. In 1678, Bridget was brought to the court yet again for use of bad language toward her husband. Thomas Oliver died in 1679. Bridget inherited the estate, a house, and its contents, along with 10 acres. Her stepsons and her daughter only inherited 20 shillings each. Three months later, the stepsons accused Bridget of bewitching their father and causing his death. The case never went to trial due to lack of evidence, and it seemed at the time the children were just after their inheritance. After this, Bridget married a well-respected woodcutter named Edward Bishop. Things get a little mixed up in the historical records at this point because Bridget Bishop was confused with Sarah Bishop, who had also been accused of witchcraft around the same time. Sarah was married to one of Bridget's stepsons, and his name was also Edward. But this is what historians know for sure about Bridget and the Salem witch trials. Bridget brought attention to herself due to her lifestyle. Her arguments with her husband was one a behavior that brought about gossip. She frequently entertained guests drinking and playing a forbidden game called shovelboard. Also, her wardrobe was considered too fancy for what was the custom for women to wear of that day. The villagers believed a proper and honest woman should never dress the way she did. Bridget Bishop was arrested and charged with witchcraft on April 18, 1692. She had been accused by Mercy Lewis, Abigail Williams, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Anne Putnam Jr. She was questioned the next day by Judges Conwin and Hawthorne. Whenever Bishop would look over at one of the girls she had supposedly hurt, the victim would suddenly collapse and have a fit. When Bridget touched them, they would suddenly be revived. The girls also copied her movements. Once Bridget rolled her eyes to the heavens when asked a question, and the girls all did so in overdramatic unison. This got gasps from the audience watching the trials. Hawthorne asked her about the first time she had been accused of witchcraft and about her current behavior. She denied being a witch over and over again. Following the questioning, she was charged on five separate charges with witchcraft and put in jail. Evidence was then gathered during the next couple of months and presented to the court. Over 10 witnesses gave detailed testimonies about the way Bridget bewitched them personally or their families and sometimes even their animals. On June 2nd, Bridget and five other accused women, Elizabeth Proctor, Rebecca Nurse, Alice Parker, Susanna Martin, and Sarah Good were examined by nine other women and a doctor. The examiners claimed they found unnatural growths on Bishop nurse and proctor. The accused were examined a second time six hours later, and it was reported that Bishop and Proctor were now clear of any witch marks, and the other women just had patches of dry skin. All the evidence and testimonies against Bishop were presented in front of seven judges on June 2, 1692. The jury found her guilty of witchcraft that day, and her death warrant was issued for June 8th. Bridget Bishop was hung on June 10th at Proctor's Ledge near Gallow Hill in Salem Town, becoming the first victim of the witch trials. Since she was a convicted witch, she was not allowed to be buried in a cemetery. It is believed that she was buried at the site of her execution. During the trial of Sarah Good, the girls did all the same things like going into fits when Sarah looked at them, crawled around on the floor, claimed to see her specter tormenting them, and see her yellow bird flying around the courtroom. 
One of the girls took this a step further. During a witness testimony that had the only person in the town that was on Sarah's side, one of the girls suddenly screamed out in pain and accused Sarah of stabbing her. The girl stood up holding a tip of a knife to prove it. Suddenly, a man came forward from the back of the courtroom dramatically holding up his own knife, showing the audience and the magistrate that the tip was missing. He said that Sarah Specter must have broken it off and used it to stab the girl. I wanted to put that in this episode to show you how over-the-top and dramatic this all was. After the hanging of Bridget Bishop, five more accused were hung in July, including Rebecca Nurse. Rebecca was the first well-respected and well-loved person to be executed. Many people had signed a petition asking for Rebecca to be spared and released. It surprised residents that she was found guilty and many began to question the trials at this point. The number of people accused began to decline in June. However, there were over 200 accused witches crowding the jails in Salem Town, Ipswich and Boston. Prisoners were held in dungeons and chained to walls in filthy conditions and not well ventilated in the summer and freezing cold temperatures in the winter. I just cannot imagine the conditions these poor people had to live in while they were in jail. John Proctor wrote a letter to the Boston clergy. He told them about the poor treatments of the accused. He asked that the trials be moved to Boston because people were not getting fair trials in Salem Town. The clergy did discuss the trials at the beginning of August, but John Proctor was hanged on August 19th along with five others. Elizabeth was not hanged because she was pregnant at the time. Cotton Mather, the respected minister from Boston who wrote the pamphlet I talked about earlier, wrote a letter urging the court to stop accepting spectral evidence, but the court ignored his request. Another prominent person to be accused was Captain John Alden Jr., son of Mayflower crew member John Alden. A child accused him of witchcraft while he was returning to Boston from a trip to Canada. After 15 weeks in jail, his friends helped him escape and he fled to New York. The gruesome public torture and death of Giles Corey caused the opposition to the trials to grow. Corey refused to enter a plea. His wife was also on trial at the time. If Corey was found guilty, his estate would be taken and his children would not be allowed to inherit the property. English law allowed someone refusing to enter a plea to be tortured. In September, he was placed on a board and heavy stones were put on top of him, gradually increasing the weight until he either made a plea or died. He finally died three days later on September 19th. His dying words when asked yet again to confess to being a witch were, more weight, and then he died. The last of the hangings of the Salem witch trial were on September 22nd when eight people were hung. People began to doubt that so many people could be guilty of witchcraft. They began to fear that many innocent people were being accused and then executed. On October 3rd, Mather Cotton's father named Increase Mather, and yes, his name was Increase Mather. I don't know what compels you to name your son Increase, but I just find that really interesting. Anyway, Increase Mather condemned spectral evidence in an essay. He was also the president of Harvard College, so his words carried a lot of weight. Finally, the use of spectral evidence was declared inadmissible in court. The governor stopped the court of Oyer on October 29th. It seemed he agreed with Mather's essay. Also, his own wife was being questioned for witchcraft at the time, and the governor put a stop to further arrests as well. 
He put a new court in charge that he called the Supreme Court of Judicature, which is still the Supreme Court of Massachusetts today. The remaining 56 people were tried in a new court in January of 1693. Without the use of spectral evidence, only three were found guilty. The others were released due to lack of evidence. Those who were found guilty were pardoned by Governor Phils, and so the Salem witch trials finally came to an end. The Salem witch child caused a lot of pain. Children had to testify against their own parents. One child was only four years old and she was put in jail herself. By the time she was released, she was clinically insane. Husbands and wives were forced to testify against each other and neighbors also testified against one another. In the end, 19 innocent women and men were hanged. One man pressed to death and five died in prison. Close to 250 people were accused. Two dogs were killed by mobs during this time also. Many of the people who were involved in the trials apologized publicly, including Judge Samuel Sewell and many jurors. The general court ordered a day of fasting and prayer for January 14, 1697, and in 1702, the court proclaimed the trials illegal. In 1711, the Massachusetts colony passed a bill that restored the rights and good names of everyone who had been accused. The bill also granted 600 pounds to their heirs as restitution. A formal apology did not come from officials until 1952. The Salem witch trials have fascinated people for centuries. Many plays and movies have been made about the trials, and they still show up in pop culture today. Some think of these women and men as heroes who were wrongfully tried due to some girls who were just bored and wanted to have some fun. Others think that there was something wrong with the girls. Some think that they were poisoned by the water in the area or the wheat that they had used in their bread that caused them to have real fits. And then they were influenced by the Puritans' harsh teaching of witchcraft and the devil. And that's what they really thought was going on. And then that turned into mass hysteria. Some believe that Abigail Williams was a ringleader of sorts to the girls in Salem and forced them to play along with her sick game. And then while the girls were playing this out, the adults used this as an opportunity to do land grabs and kill annoying neighbors who they just did not like. I could go on and on with these theories. I could do a whole podcast just on the theories of what the heck happened in Salem. But whatever you believe, Salem today definitely embraces the witchcraft and spooky vibe, which I find hilarious because the Puritans spent so much time killing people and freaking out due to the fear of witchcraft, and now their great ancestors are using it as a tourism opportunity. Today in Salem, you can find lots of shops devoted to the real occult. You can join in the brewmaking class, check out the Witch Museum, take historical and paranormal tours. With COVID-19, they have changed many events that would normally happen during Halloween time, but they have done a more of a virtual celebration from what I found on their website. The town is actually asking people to please postpone their trips to Salem until next year or even the year after that because we just don't know what's going to happen, but they normally have an annual Salem Haunted Happening celebration. They have a grand parade, uh, they have street fairs, food and drink festivals, costume balls, uh, costume contests, pet costume contests, ghost tours, haunted houses, trick-or-treating, and theatrical productions. If you want to plan your next trip once COVID is over, of course, you can check out all this cool information at SalemHauntedHappenings.org. Many places in Salem are still said to be very haunted. Now that you know the backstory of this time in history, let's take a look at some haunted locations still found in the city of Salem today.
Salem is most famous for its witch hunts, but there is another reason that thousands of people flock to the city each year, ghost tours. The town is old and many people think there is something about this land that is a perfect atmosphere for paranormal activity to thrive. Some paranormal researchers think it is possible that due to the girls trying to do their own rituals, they could have accidentally tapped into something dark. And once it reared its head, they did not know how to handle it. And that caused the mass panic that sparked the trials. Now, we know today that it's likely that no one that was executed was actually a witch. It is also likely that there is a lot of energy that was created from the hate, fear, and then remorse. And these strong emotions could have left a permanent mark on the town. Today, the town of Salem is thought of as the witch capital of the United States of America. Many modern day witches who still practice the craft now have a place to call home. But just remember, this town has got a lot more history than just the witch trials. The town is famous for many ghosts that are not even connected to the trials. Now I'm going to take you on a quick ghost tour of some of the most haunted places found in Salem. We'll start our tour at Wicked Good Books. First of all, I love the name of this bookstore. This store is located above tunnels that are centuries old. These tunnels were said to have been used by sea captains that docked at nearby Derby Wharf. These tunnels were mainly used for transporting goods, but they were also used for nefarious reasons. It is believed that the tunnels that ran underneath the city were also used as a way to Shanghai men. Shanghaiing is an old term that meant sea captains and their men would kidnap other young men and take them to be slaves on ships. They would use tunnels like these to take men to the docks without being seen by the people above. The paranormal activity found at Wicked Good Bookstore is very active. Books will suddenly fly off of shelves, shadow figures have been seen along the aisles, along with full-bodied apparition. Wicked Good Bookstore is also known as Salem's Haunted Bookstore. Another building that is connected to these tunnels is the restaurant now named In a Pig's Eye. This is a popular restaurant in Salem, but before it was the go-to restaurant, it once stood in the heart of the more seedy area of the town, where brothels and taverns were used by sailors and sea captains. The tunnels underneath this restaurant were also believed to have been used for shanghaiing. It seems that many sailors that died in the area decided not to leave because workers and guests have said to hear distant sounds of disembodied voices, screams, and even the sound of struggling and fighting coming up from the old tunnels. Also, the apparition of pirates have also been seen, as well as a sea captain standing near the bar area. These sightings have been very frequent. I found an interesting and somewhat cringeworthy story from Bunghole Liquors. This building is said to be extremely haunted, and that might be due to the fact that it was once used as a funeral home. When it was a funeral home, the owners decided to also have a side job by using the basement as a speakeasy during the Prohibition era. People used to go down to the basement and drink next to all the embalming equipment and fluid, and they also used to gamble on the tables, and let me just say, ew, when I read that, ugh, that gave me the chills. 
Today is, ironically, a liquor store, and workers and shoppers have heard disembodied voices and seen a woman who looks like she's looking at the wine rack before vanishing once people try to talk to her. It is also said that there is a ghost of a black cat that likes to hang out inside the store as well. Some have even claimed that you can hear the speakeasy in full swing downstairs, and it sounds like people are having a big old party until workers go downstairs to look and find an empty basement. The Hawthorne Hotel was built in 1923, and it is said that the area the hotel now stands on was once Bridget Bishop's apple orchard. To remind you guys, Bridget Bishop was the first woman hanged for witchcraft. Guests who have stayed in the hotel have reported smelling the smell of apples, as well as seeing a woman in white wandering around the halls. Room 612 is said to be the most haunted room. People who have stayed in this room reported seeing a woman standing outside their door. Another area of the hotel that has many reports of strange activity is room 325. In this room, many people have claimed that the faucets turn on and off by themselves as well as the lights flickering on and off. People have also reported being touched and hearing the sound of a baby crying. The woman in white is thought to be the ghost of Bridget Bishop herself. Another cool paranormal thing that is said to happen at the hotel is inside the hotel's restaurant, there is a wheel from an old ship. Staff have reportedly seen it moving on its own as if a sea captain is still steering his ship. The old theater in Salem is said to be haunted by a man who is dressed in a Victorian era clothing. He has a top hat and coattails, and he just likes to sit in the back of Theater 3 and watch movies before he vanishes. Proctor's Ledge is the location where many of the executions from the witch trials took place. Although it is still hard to pinpoint the exact location of Proctor's Ledge today due to historical records being lost, but where many people think Proctor's Ledge is, is said to be extremely haunted. Back when people were being killed for witchcraft, the Puritans believed that it was dangerous to even touch a witch's body after their death. So, after the person was hung, they were not given a proper burial. Instead, they were unceremoniously dumped in the woods and left to rot. Knowing that this was the fate for 19 people, I am not surprised their spirits are sticking around. I'd be pissed too. People have reported the feeling of anger and sadness in the area, along with the dark energy in the woods. A woman in white has been seen and is said to have wandered around the ledge in the surrounding woods. Some people have even reported to hear the sound of crying and screaming. Random cold spots even on a summer's day and glowing orbs and black shadows have been seen both in pictures and to the naked eye. The Witch House, also called Corwin's House, is one of the last remaining buildings with a direct tie to the Salem Witch Trials. This house was originally owned by Judge Jonathan Corwin, who served on the court that sentenced 19 people to death for witchcraft. This house is almost 400 years old, and it is said to be extremely haunted. Many believe that the spirits of the people who were executed came back to haunt Judge Corwin, and many of the spirits are still seen today in the home. Corwin also is said to haunt the building, as well as four of his children who died all at a young age. Footsteps, strange knocking sounds, cold spots, people being touched, and sometimes even pushed. The disembodied voices and sounds of children playing have also been heard throughout the home. The Joshua Ward House is a three-story brick building that sits on the footprint of the home that was once owned by George Corwin. George Corwin was the sheriff during the witch trials, and he was said to be an evil man who took pleasure in torturing the accused. 
He was also responsible for the hideous death of Giles Corey. According to legend, while Giles was being pressed to death, he also cursed the sheriff to forever have to wander the land instead of moving on after his death. Whether that is true or not, it seems that the sheriff has ended up sticking around on his own property. His ghost is nicknamed the Strangler, for many guests to the home have reported the feeling of being choked. People who visit the home also experienced pictures falling off the walls and shelves, books being thrown across the room, and strange sounds and footsteps coming from the upper floors when no one is up there. The Old Bering Point Cemetery is also known as Charter Street Cemetery. This cemetery is not only the oldest in the town, but it is also one of the oldest cemeteries in the whole country. Many people buried here were key players in the witch trials. Most notably is that of Judge Hawthorne, who got the nickname The Hanging Judge by locals. Local legend says that if you snap a picture of Judge Hawthorne's gravestone, he just might appear in your photo. It also appears that these ghosts like to wander around because people who live near the cemetery have claimed to see ghosts dressed in Puritan clothing drifting throughout their homes. People who visit the cemetery now claim to see shadows and apparitions wandering among the headstones before they fade away. There is also a bar and restaurant that sits on the back corner of the old cemetery. It is now called Murphy's, but it used to be called Roosevelt's. This bar is extremely haunted due to the close proximity to the cemetery. It is also said that there was once a casket found underneath the floorboard, so it is possible that they built this bar on top of graves. The owner of the then Roosevelt's restaurant and bar was locking up for the day when he claimed to see a full-bodied apparition of a female in a powdered blue dress. She was with a young boy who was carrying a picnic basket. The owner got a good long look at them before they vanished. The staff has also reported seeing this apparition. Things in the bar also move on their own, and voices are heard when no one else is around. you guys had fun taking a deep dive into the Salem witch trials with me and also talking about some really cool haunted locations in the area. There was so much more to these witch trials. I could have talked on and on about them and also about haunted locations, but I had so much fun making this episode and covering what I could. So I hope you guys enjoyed it and I hope you guys have a spooky and fun Halloween. Please stay safe. I know right now is a little uncertain right now everywhere, but just whatever you do, just have fun and stay safe. Thank you guys so much for bearing with me with my power outage. I just got my power back on and I was able to get this episode out on the airwaves. And as soon as I make this, I will be posting it. That is how fast I've I've made tried to make this episode. So for the moment I'm talking is when I'm going to post this in like 20 minutes after I record this. Don't forget also to tag me in your Halloween costumes, Halloween decorations, party decor, whatever you're doing this year. I'd love to see them. If you're new to the show, make sure to check out my website at historicallyhaunted.net and also add me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All the links are down below so you can find all those. And don't forget to check out my Patreon page if you want to support the show. Link also down below. Once again, thank you guys so much. Have a happy Halloween. I can't wait to see you guys back here soon. And I will see you guys again real soon. Bye, everybody.
Happy Halloween! <laughs>